please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be here with us in this place this evening, and we trust that you have kept your promise and are here with us. May my words tonight be your words. May all of our thoughts be your thoughts. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. It has long been the tradition of the church to train a special focus on what are called Jesus' seven last words, the last things that he says while hanging on the cross. Now, as you might imagine, some of them get more publicity than others. For instance, it is finished. And truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. These are words that I find myself returning to again and again. But there are sayings that are sort of less obviously laden with good news. And the phrase that I always felt had the most tenuous connection to Jesus' saving work was his telling Mary, woman, here is your son, and then telling John, identified as the disciple that Jesus loved, here is your mother. And the couple of times that I've been invited to preach as one of these uh, seven last words preaching events, I always hoped that I would avoid this assignment. Uh, The statement was always pretty opaque to me, hard to understand, or at least hard to preach, hard to connect to the gospel. Where's the good news here? Until, that is, a friend of mine recently pointed me to the connection between this text and the first time that Jesus addresses his mother as woman. Now, it's an odd way to address your mother, especially to our modern ears. And so the two instances do really stand out in the pages of Scripture. Jesus saying to Mary's face, woman. And taken together, these two instances actually, I think, shine a bright light on just what it is Jesus is accomplishing with his final breaths on that Friday afternoon on Calvary. The first time Jesus calls Mary woman, it is in a far different circumstance than as one of his seven last words from the cross. It's not at the climax of his ministry as he gives his life for the sins of the world. It's in fact at the moment that his public ministry begins. In John chapter 2, Jesus and his then very small group of disciples are invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee, not far from Nazareth, Jesus' childhood home. And Mary, Jesus' mother, is also there. Now, Jewish weddings, you have to understand, always carried with them a foreshadowing of the heavenly banquet that Yahweh was preparing for his people the banquet that's described in Isaiah chapter 25. I just want to read this little section of Isaiah 25 to you now, describing the heavenly banquet that God is preparing for his chosen people. On this mountain, 
the Lord of hosts, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It's Isaiah 25 verses 6 to 8. And it was the ideal to which all Jewish bridegrooms aspired. This was the kind of party they wanted to throw for their guests. The family of the groom had a year to prepare for a wedding. And it took them a year to prepare for a wedding. They had to make sure that everything was right because, you know, all their friends and relatives knew Isaiah 25. They knew what kind of feast to expect. They were looking for rich food full of marrow and aged wine well refined. But in Cana of Galilee, at this wedding of some family friends of Mary and Jesus, something goes wrong. They run out of wine. This would have been unthinkable, a disaster of enormous proportions. The bridegroom has failed in his obligation to provide a rich feast and well-aged wine for his guests. And so Mary, apprised of the problem, turns to Jesus. They have no wine, she tells him bluntly. And here it is. Woman, he asks her, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Of course, we know that he relents, performs his first miracle, turning water into wine and therefore announcing himself publicly as at least a miracle worker, if not as the Messiah himself. And this idea of Jesus's hour which he says here has not yet come. This is a recurring theme as John writes his gospel. Jesus's initial hesitance to perform this miracle for his mother at this wedding and to redeem the failure of the bridegroom to adequately foreshadow Yahweh's heavenly feast. Jesus hesitates because he says his hour has not yet come. It's not until John chapter 12 That Jesus says his hour has come. John writes in John chapter 12 that among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip goes to tell Andrew, and then both Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus there are some Greeks who want to see you. And Jesus answers them, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. And then Jesus tells them exactly what his glorification will mean. And exactly what hour he's talking about. Very truly I tell you, says Jesus, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. Those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus' hour is that time 
spent on a criminal's cross outside the city walls, forsaken by his father, bearing the sins of the world. That is Jesus' hour. That is his time. That is why he came. And then, in that last hour, when his hour has come, he brings to completion the work that he started at that wedding near his hometown those several years ago. Then, a bridegroom had failed in his obligation. There wasn't enough wine. The feast wasn't complete. It wasn't finished. Jesus redeemed that feast, and now he has become the feast himself. On this mountain, wrote Isaiah, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Jesus himself is our feast. His body is a feast of rich food. His blood, a feast of well-aged wine. On that mountain, Golgotha, Calvary, He swallowed up the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He swallowed up death itself. On his account, the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces. The reproach of his people will be taken away. And why? Because that reproach was laid on Christ Jesus. Because his hour had come. As he describes the desolate scene at the foot of the cross, John notes that Mary, Jesus' mother, is there. Now she has no doubt come to the place of the skull to provide whatever care and comfort she can for her dying son. But that's not at all what happens, is it? Jesus looks down at her and says, Woman, here is your son. And then turns to John. Here is your mother. In his using that term woman, Mary must be transported back to the last time Jesus called her that. A wedding. Friends gathered. But a terrible shame. A bridegroom, unprepared. The wine has run out. The wedding feast might be ruined. That time, Jesus told his mother that his hour had not yet come. But now it has. And far from 
finding a Jesus in need of her care, Mary finds that Jesus is ready even now to care for her. Far from needing her provision, Mary finds the Jesus that we all find, the Savior of the world, ready to provide for her. Woman, here is your son. To John, here is your mother. And then we read that from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Jesus here is even on the cross providing for others. It's well known that very often dying men cry out for their mothers. They are in need of care. They are desperate for something to be given to them. Jesus, though, as he dies, is giving out even to his mother. Now, Jesus' own brothers, the ones who would have by tradition been bound to care for Mary... Jesus' own brothers are not yet believers. Now, they become believers and pillars of the church soon enough. But now, Jesus provides for his mother by giving her into the care of the disciple whom he loved. This is Jesus, even as he is dying, caring for another, his mother. He is, of course, caring for all of us, giving his life for the sins of the world. But in this moment, he is caring directly for the one who would have been there to care for him. Woman, here is your son. Here is your mother. The last time that Jesus called Mary woman, it seemed that shame would cover the bridegroom. But Jesus redeemed it. This time, Jesus takes the shame that would cover every sinner, the shame of the whole world, indeed, the very shame that has existed since Adam and Eve ate the fruit and realized that they were naked. Jesus is now taking all shame onto himself. On that mountain, On that desolate Friday, the Lord of hosts made for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. This feast was his own son, whose body and blood were broken and shed for the sins of of the world for your sins. And God swallowed up on that mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. In and on account of Christ, he swallowed up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. As Isaiah writes, the Lord has spoken. He has done these things for you. Amen.